if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the story of the Bible, God's story. We're seeing how the, the whole story of the Bible actually works together to tell one grand tale. And it's primarily the main character is God. And it's the story of who God is as revealed to us in his story, communicated to us. And the story, a redemption story of how his sinful people are brought back to him. This week, if you have your Bibles, will be in Exodus chapter 15. Chapters called The Wilderness. And if you remember, we've been walking through. This is our timeline. We've got all the way to up to Exodus. Now here's your... Here's your test. See if you can do it this morning without looking. All right, I'll try it too. All right, you ready? We've got God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, and exodus. There we go. All right, you guys are pretty good. So remember in the beginning, God created the world, and only God, he creates the world, and his in his his prize is man. We are made in the image, and woman, uh, made in the image of God to have a relationship with God. But you and I, we sinned, and Adam and Eve, they ate of that fruit of the tree. There's a fracture in the relationship. They make themselves God instead of worshiping God as God. And from now on, everyone who's born of Adam and Eve is born separated from God in relationship. But God right there in the garden in Genesis 3 says, I'm going to send a deliverer your way to make things right, to redeem you back to me so we can have a relationship again. And as we walk through our story, he's continued to give us more and more revelation as to who that deliverer was to become. And in Genesis 12, he told Abraham, the father of the patriarchs, he said, it's going to be through your nation that all nations will be blessed, showing us that this deliverer would be, would be from the line of Israel, and then those 12 sons of Jacob's become the 12 tribes of Israel, are enslaved in Egypt, and then last week we saw God in his power, in his glory, deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt to come to the promised land that he had promised to Abraham clear back in Genesis chapter 12. And he's a God who's always faithful to his promise. And where we are in the story today is they have been just, they have just crossed the Red Sea and now they're heading to the promised land. But as you know, there's some detour in the wilderness. Anybody ever here have a, a, a great victory only to be followed up by a great fall? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? When you are like on the mountaintop, you are on cloud nine, you are feeling good and then total disaster. This happened to me in high school. We were uh, in high school basketball practice and we were having this three-point shooting drill and I was in the corner, my sweet spot, and I'm just, I am on fire, right? I am just hitting three after three, feeling good. I hit the game-winning three for our team and I start to celebrate and here's what happened. There were these mats that were rolled up against the wall. They used to roll out for church on Sundays at the, at the Cook Inlet in the gym there put the chairs on top of the mats. So these, these mats are rolled up, and as I'm celebrating, woohoo, woohoo, woo, bam, trip over the mats, face plant, complete humiliation in front of the rest of my teammates. And as I was plummeting to the floor, I thought of the words of Andrew Benar, who said, that didn't really happen, let us, <laughs> let, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. And oftentimes, I was locked in on those three-pointers, but after the victory, I started looking at myself instead of the one who gives victory. And listen, the, the nation of Israel is going to go through the exact same thing that we're going to see this morning. They have just come off this great victory. God, in his power, has delivered them 
out of Egypt, where they were slaves for over 400 years. But how quickly we're going to see in this story they fall. And they forget their God. They, they, they refuse to trust in the promise keeper, even after all he had just done for them. And if Exodus, we said if Exodus represents our salvation, what we're going to see after this as they move through the wilderness is it's going to represent what the life and growth of a believer can look like. And it ain't always pretty. We're going to learn three things about God in his story today. That he's restorer, that he is sustainer, and that he is forgiver. So let's look first at the fact that he is restorer. Exodus chapter 15. You're going to learn this with the bitter water at Marah. Starting in verse 22. When Moses, then Moses, led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea. And they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the, bitter, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. Now, if you remember, this same chapter, the Israelites just got done singing this song to God... Remember, we all stood and said at the end of last week's sermon, they sing this song to God. The horse and rider has been thrown into the sea. They, they, three million people bust out into like this Disney musical. You know what I'm talking about? When they all know the, the words and the choreography, even though they've never met each other before. It's just bonjour, bonjour. And they all just kind of go into the song with one another. And, and they, they sing about all that God has done. 400 years of slavery, and they've been delivered. He sends 10 plagues that defy human logic. He parts the Red Sea. He's leading them with a cloud and a pillar of fire. And then three days later, we can't find any water. And we whine and we complain and we refuse to trust the God that just showed us who he is to us. We got some southern here, southerners here saying amen. I like it. You guys can learn something from them. Man, I'll tell you what. So listen, listen. To be fair, there's three million people trudging through the desert and haven't had water for three days. Like, this is not nothing. This is not just, we don't have any Wi-Fi, right? This is like a, a, a serious problem. And then at long last, after 72 hours of trudging through the hot sand and desert, they come up to some water, plant their face in it, only to find out that it is too bitter to drink. Water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink drink, right? It's like when you're in, you only have salt water kind of a thing. And, and I want us to pause on that because aren't there not times in our lives when we go, God, where exactly are you leading me? This is not fun. You have not given me a drink of water for weeks. Maybe even you feel like it's been months. Legitimately hard things. And listen, the, the problem here is not the question that they ask, but it's the posture of heart by which they ask it. It's not coming to God and saying, God, I need a drink. We recognize him as our provider. The problem is that they came with an attitude that said, I don't trust you. It was, it was an attitude that complained, an attitude that was whining. And God's response is incredible. Of course, it says, verse 25, Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the people showed him a, a piece of wood, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. Now listen, if I'm God, if I'm God, we're all in trouble. But I, if I'm God, I'm saying, give me that log, right? I'm going to crack some Israelite heads with that log, right? 
You, you, you don't trust me after all I've done for you. You're going to start complaining and, and whining. But that's not what God does here. He, he says, give me the log. He says, put the log into the water. And he restores the bitter water and makes it sweet. And if that wasn't already good enough, look at what he does in verse 27. After leaving Mara, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. They camped there beside the water. So God, after all of their complaining and turning their backs on him, just three days after all these miracles, he takes them to a desert oasis, a resort for like the, the winners on Survivor, right? And he says, here, hang out here for a while. And, and, and you might be like me going, these people don't deserve that. And that's exactly the point, is grace. God shows them grace because before I trample them with my high horse, aren't I glad that God doesn't give me what I deserve? When, like Israel, God has done nothing but provide for me. He has done nothing to give me above and beyond everything I could ask or imagine. But then the second something goes wrong, I whine and I complain. And God's response is to continue to be patient and to continue to be good to me. God is the restorer. And just like that water at Marah, God is in the business of making the bitter things in life sweet. Now, maybe you're in a season of life today where where the water tastes bitter, and it's hard to trust God in that time. But that is our human perspective. That is seeing things from a limited point of view. It's just like when, when your kid, they can't see how that toxic broccoli that you are shoving down their throats could possibly be of any humane benefit to them, right? When you send them early to bed, when you spank them, they're going, how in the world is this good? But that's because they're seeing things from a kid perspective. They don't see what the adult sees. They don't know what you know. And we don't see the big picture. We don't see what God sees. And he's using every single thing we encounter to grow us, to make us more like him. And even the bitter tasting things will become sweet. God is the restorer. Number two, God is the sustainer. He goes on and says, uh, he teaches them about the manna and quail in the desert of sin. It says, the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of sin between Elam and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. So it's been a month's time now. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. So first they went three days without complaining. Now they've gone a month. We call that progress, okay? So they ask, and first here's what happens this time. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. So first, they don't have any water, and now they're complaining because they don't have any meat. Okay, you give an Israelite some water, and they're going to want some manna, right? That age-old saying, give a mouse a cook. Never mind. All right. So, um, we, so what do they say here? Listen, did you hear the words? Life was better back in Egypt. What an audacious thing. What a, what, a, what a slap in the face to God. They only remember the good parts of Egypt. They're completely leaving out the parts, you know, forced labor, beatings, their children are being chucked into the Nile River. 
But all they look back and go is, we had meat back there. Life was better when we could do whatever we wanted. And there are times in, in our lives where don't we say that as believers? Man, it was better back before I knew Jesus. Couldn't I go back to a time when no one was telling me what to do? And we think about, remember our friends where they just kind of accepted you wherever you were at? Not like these Christians who are always like, that's a sin, that's a sin. Like, it would be so much better to be back and I could just, you know, drink every weekend and I could just kind of do whatever I wanted. I could party, I could sleep around. Like, I was in control of my own life. But we're totally forgetting the reality of what it, it looks like to live without Jesus. The hopelessness, the bondage, the meaningless, empty misery of living for self. Because make no mistake, you're always serving somebody. And then he goes on. Look at, look at Moses and Aaron's response. This is, I think this is totally fair. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. He's going to do something spectacular once again. Because he has heard your complaints, which are against him, not against us. What have we done that you should complain about us? Moses and Aaron, they go, look, we didn't bring you out here. Like, why are you complaining against us? God did. We're following the cloud and the pillar of fire just like you are. See, when we complain, it's not a complaint against mom and dad. It's not a complaint against my boss or my friend or even my enemy. It's not a complaint against my circumstances. When we complain, we are ultimately saying, God, I don't trust you. Because who gave you your parents? Who put the, I know, who put the president of the United States in place? All right, we're good. Sorry, I forgot. Right. Keep on going, Justin. Who put you where he put you? What, what, why are you in the circumstances you're in? Old professor from Bible school, he said it this way. He said, a walk of sight, it needs a scapegoat for every discomfort. See, if we're looking at things from a human perspective, if we're looking for our circumstances to satisfy us, then when they don't, we got to blame something. I got to blame somebody or something that's causing me to not get what I want. But a walk of faith, to contrast, lives in the confidence of the sovereignty of God. And no matter how long you've been walking in the desert to know God doesn't make mistakes. That he has me or he has me for a reason. That he's put the people in my life that he's put in my life for a reason, and he is bigger and better than any circumstance here in this world. And then God again in his mercy. He goes, the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. This is what Google Images gave me. Okay, i never seen the movie. Heard it's great. Um, God says, I'm literally going to rain food down from heaven for you. Now, why does he do that? Look at verse 12. I've heard the Israelites complain. Now tell them, in the evening you will have meat to eat, and in the morning you will have all the bread you want. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I'm going to give you bread for breakfast. I'm going to give you meat for dinner. Amen. And why am I doing this? So that you will know who your God is. That you will know who to worship. That you will know to obey and who to trust and so he does this and he sends as that evening vast numbers of quail flew in and covered the camp 
So this is hunting time, boys. Grab your bows and arrows. And they go chasing after these quails. And then it says the next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. They had no idea what it was. Now in Hebrew, the, the phrase, what is it, literally was manna. So when they say manna, they're going, what is, what is that? We never, like a whatchamacallit, right? They, they don't know. What, and that's actually what they end up naming the bread is just manna. And, and, and God has given it to them. Now, what's interesting here, I love this in verse 31. It says, it tasted like honey wafers. So God is not throwing them off-brand, great value, Safeway select garbage, right? He says, it tastes like honey. I think this is the first edition of King's Hawaiian Rolls. Can I get an amen, right? <laughs> Literally thrown from heaven, I do believe. God, when he gives to us, he does not just give, he gives extravagantly. And look at what it says. And he gives them specific instructions on this bread, okay? He says, each household should gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did it as they were told. Some gathered a lot, and some gathered a little. But when they measured it out, everyone had just enough. Those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Each family had just what it needed. So the hoarders, okay, and, and, and the skimpers, they each came away with the exact amount of bread they needed, sovereignty of God at play. And then Moses told them, do not keep any of it until morning. And we'll circle back to that. But some of them didn't listen. Some of them didn't obey. Some of them continued to not obey and trust God. They kept some of it until morning. But then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. Moses, again, is like, are you kidding me, right? You see... God, he says, take exactly what you need for today. Do not save it for tomorrow. If you do, it will be full of nasty maggots. God gives us exactly what we need for today. His mercies are new every morning. That means tomorrow morning, he's going to give you new mercies. And the day after that, he's going to give you some more mercies. But, but here's what I want to do. I want to take his gifts and I want to grab them and I want to hold them and I want to hoard them and I want to control them because I don't trust that he's going to give me more. And see, I do this all the time. I do this with people in my life. God will send me a person and I'm just afraid of losing them. Like me and Pastor Larry, we get together every Thursday afternoon so I can complain about you guys. Um, no, that's not true. <laughs> um, and and, and I, you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that he's going to die soon, right? That's, sorry, that's not nice. Um, uh, I don't actually think he's going to die soon. But I am afraid that, that at some point, God will take him away from me. And if I don't have Pastor Larry anymore, who am I going to go to? Who am I going to be encouraged by? Who's going to be my coach? He's gone through 40 years of ministry. He knows our church. He knows me. God has specifically given him into my life to be able to coach me and guide me and encourage me. And if he takes him away, I'm going to be up a creek. I do the same thing about, you know, like you'll be listening to a song. A song will come on in my car and it'll be just this moment of encouragement. And I'll be listening to it and tears are flowing down my face and I encounter Jesus there. But what I do is I start putting my trust in the song instead of Jesus. And so the next time that I'm feeling down, I don't turn to Jesus, I turn to the song. And I turn the song on that time and you know what happens? It doesn't work. The song broke. And I'm listening to it and I'm like trying to like get into it again, like force tears and like feel that feeling and it doesn't work, right? 
And, and what happens is it's it sh- evidence that I'm trusting the gift and not the giver. I'm trusting the sustenance and not the sustainer. And God goes on and he says, um, oh, C.S. Lewis, he said it this way, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. You see, it doesn't carry over. It's not rollover minutes, okay? He says, you wake up and you trust me all over again. It's full surrender day after day. We don't rely on yesterday's nourishment and we don't freak out that he's not gonna give us more tomorrow. A walk with Jesus is always in the present. Then he says uh, a special a special thing on, on Fridays. He goes, on the sixth day, gather twice as much food, four quarts for each person instead of two. And all the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation. What's up, Moses? I thought you said one for each day. Why are we doubling up on Friday? He tells you why. He told him, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. So he says, yes, one uh, supply for each day, but on Fridays you're going to double up. This is the first time we see the word Sabbath used in scripture. Now, of course, we know back in the creation order, God rested. This is a precedent from creation. He rested on the seventh day, meaning he stepped back and enjoyed what he'd made. He worshiped himself, essentially. And God says he's given him a precedent. We're going to see it next week in the law. I want you to set apart a day each week to worship me. It's set apart for me. And so what he says is, I want you to double up on Friday so that Saturday you don't have to worry about gathering bread. You can simply come and you can worship me. God sustains them and they can rest in him third and final point forgiver god is the forgiver he is the sustainer he is the restorer and he's the forgiver we see this at rephidim now don't you think after all that god's done the plagues the parting of the sea the guiding by cloud and by pillar raining food down from the sky they would finally be like okay i get it i trust you we're good all right, you've proven yourself. We're good from this point forward. But no, of course not. In the Bible, these things tend to come in threes, but for Israel, thousands. It says, at the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Sin, by the way, it, not the English for sin. Okay, it doesn't mean naughty. It just simply, it kind of was related to the word Sinai. It says, eventually they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for people to drink. Sounds familiar, right? What do they do? Once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. So once again, same exact thing. No water. They still have not learned their lesson. And so they come and Moses goes, quiet. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continue to argue with Moses. Why would you bring us out to Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Yes, that was my plan. Yes. All the, all the years of bondage, you come out here and I'm going to take away your water bottles and watch you die. I'm busted, right? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. Now notice, there's a difference, we've said, between crying out to the Lord and crying about the Lord. The people are complaining. They're whining about God. Moses comes to him and goes, God, what do I do? Okay, that's falling on our knees. That's humility. That's trusting God. Moses is crying out to God because the Israelites are crying out about God. And so what they say here, and, and you notice here, how is God going to react, okay? God, you're not going to forgive them three times, are you? Three times? But you remember Matthew 18? What Peter and Jesus are having a conversation? He said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Now understand in Hebrew, seven was a perfect number. So he's going, that's the perfect amount. And think about that. If someone did the exact same thing seven times in a row to you, 
and you forgave them seven times in a row, you're a pretty good person, right? That's pretty impressive. Seven times. What's Jesus' response? No, not seven. Seventy times seven. Now, that doesn't mean 490, which is the math for those of you who are like, wait a second. Um, it's not 490 and then bam, right? That's it. It's over. 491, you're out on your luck. The point he's making here, it's an hyper- a hyperbole. He goes, it's unlimited forgiveness. He says, you never stop forgiving the person no matter how many times they've they've wronged you. Now listen, Jesus is saying your forgiveness should be unlimited because my forgiveness for you is unlimited. In our flesh, we don't have the capability of forgiving somebody once, let alone unlimited. And this brings us to our third point. This is the climax. This This is unbelievable. It takes us to this. Look at this. The Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you, were, when you struck the water uh, of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. So once again, he provides water. Now, I've heard this story billions of times. Okay, thousands of times. Probably still an exaggeration. But something here that I noticed that is so central to the point look at what he says in verse six i will stand before you on the rock now catch this god is standing right where he tells moses to strike so so essentially he's saying i want you to strike the blow where i am all of your anger all of your wrath all of your fury toward the people take it out on me Strike me. And, and understand, and if you're the rock, okay, you might say, if you're not an inanimate object, you might say, what did I do, right? The rock's going, why are you striking me? Take the people out. They're the ones that were wrong. Why in the, I, I don't deserve it. The people do. Why are you striking poor rock? The rock, God, took the blow the people deserved for their own lack of trust in him. It's a picture of Jesus. And just so you think I'm not making up like all this weird symbolism, it's in the New Testament. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 10. All of them, the Israelites, drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. You see, Jesus said, I'll absorb the wrath. I'll take the blow that you deserve. So we look at this story of Israel, and you go, God, why do you keep forgiving them? Like every single time, 490, over and over, you keep forgetting them no matter how many times they complain, no matter how many times they whine, no matter how many times they fail to control. Why do you keep forgiving them? And he goes, it's because of Jesus. And when I go, God, why do you keep forgiving me? Uh, why, even though I keep failing you, I keep coming up short, I keep running to other lovers, I keep disappointing you, why do you keep forgiving me? And he goes, Jesus. It's because of Jesus. And listen, I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. They keep throwing tamper tantrums and God keeps throwing grace because one day Jesus was going to come and he was going to forgive every complaint, every moment of distrust, every rebellion. He was the rock that was stricken. God must punish sin. And so Jesus took it for us. So when he forgives us, when he's patient with us, the reason he doesn't have to punish the things that we do is because Jesus took the punishment for us. 
which is exactly why when we throw our tantrums, he keeps throwing goodness and grace. And you read these stories and you go, my goodness, over and over again, it's complaining at Mara, whining and complaining at Rephidim, over and over and over again. When are they going to get it? If they were writing a book about my life, you know what the little subheadings would be? Whining and complaining in Salatna. Whining and complaining at college. Won't trust God at work. Wants new parents. No, that one's not real. And over and over again, just, you know, and, and so why in, in all of this, Jesus continues to be patient with me and to forgive me and to walk with me. And, and you might ask the question, why didn't God just immediately take them to the promised land? Like, why this whole wilderness thing? Wouldn't it have been easier just to bypass that, just straight into the milk and honey, right? Why does he go through this? It's the exact same reason that he takes us through trials and pain and frustration and loss and despair. He is concerned about something more than our comfort. He's concerned about our holiness. And he knows that this is what they need to become the kind of people that he wants them to be. And what kind of people does he want them to be? A people that trust him. I believe the purpose of all of existence is to glorify God. And the way that we glorify God is by being satisfied in Jesus, by trusting what God has said about what Jesus did. And so I believe you could encapsulate all of the words in Scripture in two words. In two words. Trust me. Trust me. And the question that I have, the two other words that I would ask us to ask ourselves in response to that is, do you trust me? And God's saying, do you trust me? I had to throw this in there. It's the Aladdin line from, I don't know. If you don't get it, you're a better person than me. Two components of, of rest, and, and then we'll be done. Or two components of trust. The first one is rest. Rest, rest takes courage. And, and here's what I mean. As you lay asleep, did you ever think about the fact that you are incredibly, you're in an incredibly vulnerable position when you sleep? You're like, no, but thanks, now I won't be able to sleep at night. Um, you could be harmed a thousand different ways, right? You could be sneak attacked. You could die in a fire. You could be suffocated by an angry spouse, right? You could just, there's a lot of ways. It's time to go to lunch, sorry. <laughs> and you're trusting all of your organs just to continue to do what they do. Your lungs to take in air, to your heart to beat. Like you're just kind of trusting that, that your body on autopilot is just going to continue to do what it needs to do. And here's the question. How well do we rest in him? It's a vulnerable position to surrender our lives to God and to not know what's coming tomorrow and to not know where he's going to lead us, what he's going to bring our way, and just to trust that he is going to continue to have us function as he sees fit to function. Rest is incredibly vulnerable, and therefore it takes an incredible amount of God-given courage to rest in his hand and trust his providence. But number two, it takes humility. And you understand these people... The Israelites were farmers. They were shepherds. They didn't just run to Safeway and grab a frozen pizza for dinner. They were used to providing for themselves and their families, working the ground, okay, eating what they had earned, what they had accomplished. And so now God is bringing them to the desert where they are unable to provide for themselves. It's a humble position. It's a bizarre position where they have to just trust that God is going to throw food down from the sky at me and accept it. That's why our flesh, our sin nature, rejects grace because grace says God did it, you can't do it. And we want so badly to have the glory, to get the credit. And so our flesh wants no part of grace. But maybe God is taking away something out of your life that you've relied on, that you've prided yourself on, that you've been trusting in instead of him. I was thinking, like, if God made me a mute, okay, 
we don't have big problems, right? My profession really rests on me being able to speak. And even like in my, my downtime, I'm, I'm calling basketball games on the radio. Like everything I do centers around flapping my jaw, right? And, and you know, if God takes that away, I still trust him to use me and do the things in my life that he's going to do. And it's like, I mean, God has given all of us different gifts. I think of, of Robert, our deacon of facilities, okay? God, Robert can work with his hands. He can make things that don't work, work. It, to me, it's like magic. You would not want me in charge of our facilities. He's given Jeannie, uh, our finance manager. He's given her a sharp brain that can do the money stuff. Again, you don't want me in charge of that, Okay. He's given Cody, our intern, um, Cody thinks he's a great athlete. Um, <laughs> let's just keep letting him think that, all right? Just between you and 150 of us. Um, some of us, it's brain. Some of us, it's brawn. We've been given all sorts of different gifts and talents and passions, but they're all from the Lord. And how do we know if we're trusting the gifts or we're trusting the giver? There's a very easy way for God to find out what happens when he takes those gifts away. Robert falls off a ladder and becomes a paraplegic, okay? Not, not, not no ill wishing toward Robert. Jeannie goes blind. Cody simply wakes up, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the question is, can God take care of me in any situation, regardless of my position, regardless of my faculties, regardless of my strength, no matter how bleak, no matter how hot the desert is, do I trust that he will finish what he started? Do I trust him? Or do I just trust the things that he gives me? So let's learn from Israel. Let's learn from Israel so that we may not make their same mistakes. And what we're trusting in, what Jesus said in Matthew 6, I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food, enough drink, the trust is not in, in, in the, the water. The trust is not in the manna. The trust is not in our money. The trust is not in the people in our lives. The thing that he's given us that is sufficient for life and godliness is the person of Jesus. And in John 7, Jesus stood and he shouted to the crowds because they were too deaf to hear. He goes, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. He says, I, have been, I will be stricken, and out of me will gush the Holy Spirit. Out of me will gush life sufficient for not just you, but every human being on the planet. And the people, they have this conversation with Jesus. And he says, show us a miracle over the chapter earlier. Show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What, what can you do? Okay, prove it. You say you're Jesus, you want us to believe in you, prove it. After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Moses, he made bread appear from the sky. What are you going to do? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. He goes, knuckleheads, it was God. It wasn't Moses. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes from heaven. The one who, okay, it's a person who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. And I love it. They go, sir, give us that bread every day, right? Like, if there's better bread than what we've been eating, we, we would like that bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Listen, we drink water every day. I'm actually getting really parched right now. And I'm going to drink some water, and it's going to quench my thirst for about five minutes, and I need more water. There's going to be bread that we're going to eat today at lunch, but eventually we're going to get hungry again. There's going to be things that come our way that, that God uses for our good, but they will come and they will go. There's one thing that is eternal. There's one thing that's satisfying, that's Jesus. And if we're hungry this morning, if we're thirsty, and we are, we just have to admit it. 
The only place we're going to find that satisfaction is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So the thing I want to leave us with is this question, and ask your, this is between you and the Lord, between me and the Lord, where will you find it, where do you find it difficult to rest and trust that the Lord will sustain you, care for you, be near to you? All of us have different areas, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a financial thing, maybe it's a time thing, I, I don't know. Let's, let's, do, let's do some heart business with the Lord, though. If you just close your eyes and bow your head with me. I just want us to take a minute and just, just, a, just some self-examination going, if the Spirit reveals this to you, Lord, what's an area of my life that I'm not trusting you as provider, that I'm not trusting you as restorer, that I'm not trusting you as forgiver, that, I, that I'm not trusting you as sustainer? And just, and, and, and just show that to me. I don't believe in sin hunting. So if the Lord has something to show you, he's going to show you. And if not, we keep walking forward by faith. Take a minute, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father God, we look at the people of Israel, and it's easy for us to go, man, how in the world do they keep forgetting? How, you've just shown them all these miraculous signs, and they don't trust you. But God, I look at my own heart, and I see how quickly I turn to lovers bus wild. I see how quickly I turn to other things in my life to satisfy me, to give me what I think that I need. And I don't trust Jesus. I don't. It's evident in the way that I live. And God, I know my brothers and sisters in this room, many of them echo that prayer. And so God, I just pray that you would give us the grace to trust you more. Reveal to us what we need to see and that we would repent of it, that we would just call it out for what it is and that we'd turn to you from it and that we would find, because you're the only one that satisfies us. Jesus is better. He's better than anything else in this world. And I pray, Lord, for the thirsty soul in here this morning, for the hungry soul in here this morning, that they would taste and see that Jesus is good and find the living water, the true bread of life, and be satisfied in nothing less than a relationship with their forgiver, their sustainer, and their restorers in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.